Welcome to the Reference Counting Podcast. I'm Taylor Hutchison, joined by Andy Collins. Uh, today's episode, we're going to talk about code smells. Uh, but before we dive into that, let's um, see what Andy's been thinking about. Andy, what, what's been on your mind recently? What's been on my mind? Uh, well, spe- the, the thing that occurs to me is that we've recently been sort of setting up things for this podcast, right? Mm-hmm. We've, we've um, we created a you know, a website, uh, we created the actual feed, we got ourselves in iTunes and that sort of thing. Um, and you've done quite a bit of that. And I've done a little bit of that myself and we've done a little together and it's, I'm, I was reminded, uh, it's been a while because kind of the nature of my work is such that I don't really work in like in the cloud very much these days. Mm, a lot of local, so, local machine stuff. Yeah, we're doing a lot of, you know, it's mostly demo kind of apps. We're running locally. So yeah, localhost constantly. Basically every every tab on my browser is open to localhost <laughs> all the time, right? Yeah. You're always constantly hunting for open ports to run a new thing, run a new process yeah. on. I mean, fortunately, there are quite a few of them, but <laughs> but that does happen. I mean, that happens quite a bit. That's part of my day. It's like, oh, I got to go. I got to add one here. Um, but just... Uh, we some of what we're doing, some of what we're doing for the podcast is in uh, is in AWS, and it's been a it's been a little bit since I use AWS, and I was reminded of how just just complicated and crazy complicated AWS is, and how I really wish that it wasn't. Yeah, uh, I uh, I am also shocked at how kind of complicated just the few things that we were trying to do. And we, it's not like we were trying to do anything specific. We weren't trying to set up a microservice architecture with 800 components or something like that. It was really just a kind of a simple CDN with an S3 bucket. Um, and the thing that strikes me the most about that is that AWS is supposed to be the developer friendly cloud. That's what I hear all the time. It's like, oh, AWS is just so developer friendly. And, and maybe that is true once you kind of spun up on it and that's your entire workflow. But uh, I beg to differ, I guess. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you can call it developer friendly if you have to like spend weeks or months learning it before you can really use it, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I have used Azure just, you know, some in, in the past and, you know, it's complicated. I mean, it's going to be complicated based the, the fact that there is that there are a lot of tools. There's a lot of stuff happening there, so it's going to be complicated. But um, I find Azure to be a little bit more straightforward, frankly. Yeah, I think that the I agree with the uh, straightforwardness of Azure. If we could just get the speed of AWS into Azure, I think it would be just perfect. Um, just different, you know, the different screens and, and whatnot load quicker in, in AWS than they do Azure. And, and I think I've seen some improvement over the last year in Azure, where I've been spending a lot of time recently. But yeah, <laughs> that is the the striking thing about setting up all this podcast stuff is just how complicated it's been and of course you and i have been trying to roll our own you know we didn't we chose not to go with like some kind of canned podcast as a service type solution um (laughs) maybe that'll feed into our main topic of code smells today it's like this unwillingness to just buy or pay money for someone else to solve it for us we feel like we have to roll our own but uh yeah that's been an interesting part of the journey well, you say that I still, even though it was complicated and we've had to do a lot, I, I think we made the right choice. I think doing it all on our own is fine. If 
you know, when we get super popular and we have all kinds of other like issues that come with that, then we'll, we'll pay someone to do it. That sounds fine to me. Right. Yeah, I agree. I'm glad we did it the way we did it. And I've learned a few things. Um, it just, it, it's been interesting. So what have you been thinking about Taylor? I've been, uh, trying to expand my horizons, you know, uh, for work, I've been learning all kinds of, uh, .NET core stuff and, and Azure things and trying to branch out and, and kind of get from underneath the, the Microsoft, uh, thumb. So I've been looking at other languages and it's always been part of, uh, what I consider to be my long-term growth plan of, of learning other languages. And I've seen the kind of great programmers of our time suggest that you should know other languages, maybe the right number is around five. Um, and my problem has been that they, all the languages that I've bothered to really do a deep dive on in the last 10 years have all been centered around .NET. So, uh, you know, C Sharp, PowerShell, and uh, to some degree F Sharp, just as a kind of a toy. Um, so I wanted to take a step back from that. I've sort of abandoned my long running mission of, of learning C++ and that's a whole other topic. I think of, of the complexity of C++ and the direction it's headed and all that. Uh, but I've recently picked up uh, Rust and Smalltalk. And for the Smalltalk thing, um, I'm using an impl implementation called Squeak. Are you familiar with Squeak at all? Uh, I've only heard of it. I've not actually ever done any of that. That's that's something. That Smalltalk is a language that every time I've glanced at it, somehow it just never clicked for me. So I'm really curious to see how it's going. Yeah. I, I'd love to talk about it in the future. Um, for, for small talk, it's just, it's always up there on the list of languages that people love. And there's just such a admiration for it. Um, in, in what we see from like the eighties and nineties, people just love small talk. And granted there was a lot less languages to choose from at that time. So who knows if it's just biased information, but yeah, so I've been doing a little bit of small talk, but mainly I've been focused on rust and I don't really have a, a goal. I just wanted to learn, learn the language and kind of compare it to my own uh, C sharp knowledge and kind of compare and contrast and say like, Oh yeah, this is interesting. Or this is a better way of doing things. Even though in my mind, they're a little bit have different use cases and different purposes. But the thing that strikes me the most, like the golden feature about Rust, you know, everyone talks about like ownership and memory management and the interesting way they do that. To me, the golden feature of Rust is the package management. Uh, the car, uh, cargo is kind of the companion tool to Rust. You get it when you install Rust and it's just so nice that package management was thought about from the beginning. It's just so easy. I think Go also has a similar feature. Um, but I don't know. Cargo to me is actually so far the best part about Rust. So because of dependency resolution or ergonomics or yeah. what was so great about it? Yeah, just both of those things. I guess just the ability to add packages, the ability to... Um, have a very nice CLI to build your code and where it's all kind of abstracted away. The complexity of that is abstracted away and the, the Tomo file that you use to add those dependencies is just so clean. I, I think um, C Sharp has made a lot of progress in the last like five years around this, but I just think that it's really nice 
that Russ thought about this from the beginning. You know, it wasn't something that they did after the fact. It's been there um, for as long as I've known about Rust. So anyway, that's just what I've been thinking about, that it's not really a language feature in Rust. It's it's this kind of companion uh, ecosystem that, that comes along with it that makes it so nice to use. Well, and that, uh, that's part of a language now, I think. I've heard, you know, language creators talk about how if you ever expect your language to be used by anyone, it's not just a compiler or interpreter. That's that's like step one. But table stakes at this point are some kind of package manager, some kind of build system, you know, like uh, a standard library documentation, just tons of stuff that you have to have before your language is even considered viable. Yeah. And, and to add on to that, like, I think the thing people most want to know is like, what IDE can I use to write this and where, and can I get syntax highlighting the barrier to entry for new languages to, to kind of hit that curve and be successful and, and widely adopted. You just need so many more things now, um, in order to make developers happy and, you know, want, want to use your, your language. So maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. Cargo is not just the package manager, right? Isn't that the build tool and mm -hmm. how you actually run your apps too? Yeah. Yeah. Cargo run, cargo build, uh, cargo package, I think. Yeah. It's, it's kind of the all purpose tool for, for doing things with your Rust code. So that's sort of like, as you suggested, what the .NET command is Mm -hmm. kind of doing um of course they have the concept of .NET tools which i think sort of is nice to be able to add that you know add flexibility or add new things without having to you know alter the core of the .NET command mm -hmm. it's still my understanding is it's still farming out a lot of stuff to ms build it's just kind of a wrapper around that which itself needs a bit of help um or you know a new direction maybe going forward so anyway, that's kind of what I've been uh, thinking about. And uh, maybe we can have an episode dedicated to, to Rust and all its kind of interesting ideas in the future. Yeah, that sounds good. That's uh, it's, it's one of those languages that I occasionally turn to and look at and and then something shiny will get my attention and I'll go somewhere else. And, and I, I don't stick around as long as maybe I should. Right. Um, yeah, I'm really interested in you know, how do you fold it into your ecosystem if you wanted to say, if you had something that was um, very, had very high performance needs and you, and you do the evaluation and you say, okay, well, C-sharp can get us 95% of the way, but we really need to squeeze out that extra 5%. Maybe we'll take a look at C++ or Rust um, or another low-level language. <clears throat> do you call the library from C sharp, I mean, you're, there's going to be some performance hits from there. Do you turn that into its own process and communicate over some other protocol? Uh, I think there's all kinds of interesting architectural questions about how you have like a multi-language architecture in your uh, in your enterprise. So anyway, just what I've been thinking about. So yeah, that's that's cool. Let's uh, let's talk about code smells. What were you thinking around code smells? I, I've been thinking a lot about about the sense that I have as a developer um, that maybe something is right or something's wrong maybe maybe it's developer intuition mm -hmm. um, and, and you know that sort of intuition doesn't just show up one day uh, it's something that you have to you earn through experience and, and you gain over time 
and I, and I can't certainly can't claim to have some sort of perfect intuition, but over the years I've, I've noticed my intuition getting better. And, and this idea of a code smell, uh, which is something that, that came from Kent Beck, uh, and Dave and, uh, Martin Fowler, I keep on to say David Fowler, totally different. Fowler. <laughs> yeah, different. Um, uh, in the, in the nineties and kind of, as they were sort of in amongst other people sort of creating this agile world, this agile way of thinking about software, you know, they, they, they coined or, you know, I've seen different references to suggest that, that Martin Fowler coined it or Kent Beck. I think generally Kent Beck is credited with coining the term code smell. And I think, you know, what it is or what it is in its essence is, is, a way to think about developer intuition. So like it, it, the word smell implies that there's, there's something to be investigated here. Right. You know, like there, some, you know, something smells like fish, you know, something smells like weird, a little off maybe. Uh, I don't know if you ever had any water in your basement or crawl space, you know, if that can hang out for a while and then suddenly up in the rest of the house, you're like, there's a, there's something going on. I need to maybe go check on this. Um, unfortunately, I've experienced that. And, and I think that, that sort of thing really interests me. I'm really fascinated by, by the concept kind of as it reveals some things about us as developers. Uh, so it's this intuition that we have that something is wrong in the code. Maybe I should define code smell. It's essentially like you're looking at some code, you're reading through it, you're sort of trying to understand it. And you have a sense that there's just something is not quite right. And something that's not quite right sort of deserves a deeper dive into it. You know, you need to look and to kind of figure out if your intuition is correct or maybe your intuition isn't correct and just sort of examine it. You know, sometimes you're looking at code, you're like, oh, this makes sense. I understand it. I'm reading, I'm reading through it. I know what it does. I can make my change to it or I can um, go fix a bug or I can do whatever I need to do, whatever the purpose for me reading this code is. And that's great. And then sometimes you're like, well, something is off. And in thinking about that intuition, I immediately leaped to the way that most people think about code smells, which I think is just the more really common way to think about code smells as as something that's the exact opposite of developer intuition as sort of a list of things that might be wrong right as some sort of like universal checklist of things like well you know a code an example code smell uh, would be something like this this class is too big there's just so many lines in it and so that's something that needs to be investigated too many if else or, blocks or too many parameters to, you know something in a function yeah these are specific things that you can point to and say that is a thing that normally when i see it in code suggests that this need, that something's wrong mm -hmm. there needs to be a refactoring or there or maybe there's this is likely to have bugs or maybe this is likely to have bugs even not now in the future, you know, because it's right. going to be hard to change or something. So it feels like you're trying to draw a distinction between code smells and what we might call anti-patterns um, like that. There is a checklist of things that like, or, you know, maybe best practices, like have your class focus on one type of thing instead of trying to multi-purpose it. Um, 
that, that you could go through is sort of a code review kind of thing. Like how many parameters is this taking? Oh, it's taking 17. Maybe we should make that its own struct or something like that. Um, versus the intuition that you get, like something is wrong. Something's not right here. Uh, I, I can't quite pinpoint it, but there's no checklist for me to go through. I just need to lean on my experience. Is that kind of what you're, where you're thinking? Well, I think those things can go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. I think what happens in practice is that we start with the smell that something doesn't feel right. Something doesn't seem right. And then we can turn to those, those best practices slash list of anti-patterns and look through it. And that's where this sort of more concrete defined things that we call code smells come into play. Right. It's, it's very, I'm not against having a, like some sort of codified list of, of the things to check for the thing that just is a little bit more interesting to me, or at least something that maybe doesn't get enough attention in my opinion is that first part, that first part where you're like, I don't know what is wrong, but something is wrong. Um, and, and maybe, maybe this interests me beyond uh, being a software developer and just just thinking about how human beings think and how you know how we interact with the world um, sort of like what comes first right does it does our sense come first our intuition come first or does is it what we've seen is it the you know is a code smell something like I saw that this method has too many variables or the uh, this this method has too many parameters um, do I see that and then I notice the smell or is it like, do I sort of notice it vaguely and then I center in on why? And I sort of think it's the second thing, but I guess I don't know mm -hmm. uh, for sure. Or is it that you um, maybe are expecting a smell? Like maybe you know that this particular problem is hard or, or um, maybe the developer has introduced, you know, you're doing a code review. Maybe the developer or you or the developer have made this mistake before. Um, like for, for example, for myself, I know that I usually on my first pass, I always mess up, um, date and time math. Like if I'm trying to do anything around that, I, I, I am immediately suspicious of myself whenever I come up with the solution and it works the first time, but I'm like, okay, that that's not possible. That couldn't have worked the first time. So there's maybe a expectation of going into it that you might encounter a smell. Well, and I think that's great. That feeds into this broader idea of, of developer intuition, right? I think that's a super interesting take on um, or, or, or aspect of this. So I know what I've done wrong before, but do you really like, do you find yourself actively thinking whenever I deal with dates, that's a problem? Or do you say like, oh, I need to be careful here. And then you sort of realize why you need to be careful. Um, yeah, I think a little bit of both. I, I probably more in the second category of like, okay, I, I know I'm about to do something that I've had trouble with in the past. Um, I can't just go copy the code that I did in the past because it's a different type of thing I'm doing, but I, I know I need to be careful. I, I at least know what bit me in the past. Like I know what the outcome is or the, the unwanted outcome so I can, add to the list of things that I'm going to check for. Uh, so yeah, hard to say exactly what goes into that, that math. Yeah. And I think it, it, it's part of what it means to go from a beginner to 
if not an expert, to at least a more advanced level developer. I mean, you know, I'm I'm fond of talking about talking about my students, and and I th- sometimes I think about their perspective as a way to sort of better understand my own. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, that triangulation okay. of of their thinking and your thinking, and and the the correct solution or, or a correct solution, kind of like trying to pinpoint where you're at. So yeah, my students are are beginners. They've never done any of this before, and so they, they're you know, it would be unreasonable, beyond unreasonable, to expect them to have any kind of intuition. Mm-hmm. You know, they just haven't had it, um, and so they they're looking at it very much like here's this set of rules that I need to follow. Mm-hmm. You know, um, whenever. You know, whenever I have, I don't know, something really simple. If I have an if statement, I better, you know, put some curly braces around it. Or, you know, um, they're looking for, well, there's an error here. Why is there an error? There, every, you know, this function doesn't return anything and it should return something or I don't know, something something like that. So they're, they're looking for, you know, they're actually at a place uh, before they're even ready to look at that sort of list of code smells for the most, for the most of the time that I'm with that, that, uh, they're with us because they're just trying to understand how things work, much less worry about the, their modules being too big, um, or their functions being too right. long or just get it to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just get it to work. Because it goes into one um, executable in the end anyway. Like you don't see that, that stuff. Why does that matter? They're not worried about like, oh, maintainability because they know they get to throw that thing away after they've done that exercise. They don't, they're not burdened by their future self or, or like their future uh, teammates. Well, and they're not even really thinking that much. There's not even a thought process because mm-hmm. it's like they, they haven't had enough experience to even know that. And the thing, you know, they, they haven't had enough experience to know what it means to have maintainable software. Mm-hmm. And you can't expect any anybody who's just starting out to understand that. Um, and and I think about that in terms of like, well, if somebody does have that experience, how? And maybe I ask myself the question like, how conscious do we need to be about that? Yeah. You know, do you need do? And maybe we all get to a place where um, where we're conscious of it for a while. We're like, we are, you know, using a checklist to check things off. Uh, and maybe maybe we be we advance beyond that to like well you know what's now I'm, I've done this for a lo- longer I don't really need the checklist I can just sort of write this code and and look at it and un- understand if it's good or understand if it's bad or at least have a an intuition about it and then the other side of that is like maybe when we stop relying on those more concrete lists. And we start going on our gut. That's maybe when we start making even more mistakes again. Mm. Um, I'm reminded of, I wish I had looked this up, but I'm reminded of a study that in, in hospitals where they introduced checklists to, for doctors and nurses when they're like, you know, dealing with a patient, you know, you have, did you wash your hands? Did you like put the gloves on the right way or, um, uh, you know, did you, whatever you had to do before, I don't know how I've never worked in a hospital, but you have to do a bunch of stuff just to make sure you're, you know, you're considering safety, you know? Mm-hmm. 
and they've, you know, they, they monitor people before and after the checklist and realize that just having a simple list that reminded you of all the things you needed to do, um, cause people to actually do those things. Even people have been, you know, people have been a nurse for 20 years, like forgot to wash their hands. But when, as soon as they were presented with a, with a list, a checklist, it worked out. You know, you kind of want that. Every time I get on a, like an airplane, I'm really happy to think. And I honestly do have this thought, like there are people who have a list of things that they're going through and making sure that all the bits and pieces are working properly. Right. You know? Yeah. There's all kinds of techniques um, that they kind of go along. I don't know how this metaphor is not going to connect directly to code, but I think in it's common in Japan on trains to do this thing where you kind of point at the thing that you're talking about. So if they were going to talk about the speed of the train, they're going to point at the, the, the speed instead of uh, just, just talking about it. And there's th those kind of elements that go, that fold into the checklist of like techniques that help you um, or remind you of the right thing to do. And I think they are incredibly useful. It's just, I personally, I don't know why, but maybe subconsciously like fight against those or think like, okay, I'll do the checklist thing one time, but then I, I got it after that. I've memorized it. I can just do it myself, but I know I can't. It's sort of like going into a meeting and not taking any notes. I'm like, oh yeah, I'll remember everything that's said. And I might for like 10 minutes and then the next thing comes along, I completely forget it. So I feel like checklists are an undervalued thing that we don't do enough of in our industry. I wonder if there's some kind of balance there because I think you're you're right, um, but I wonder if there's some sort of some time when it's best to just be open and let your intuition sort of guide you, and then other times when maybe it's good to have a more rigorous checklist. And I guess what I'm thinking is, if I'm writing code, like at least the initial pass at it, I'm kind of at this point in my in my career where I just want to go write it. Right. Um, I want to go build this thing. And I think I can rely, I believe at least I can rely on my experience to do an okay job and also to know when I do need to stop. You know, that's another thing the experience gives me is like, well, okay, now I'm definitely, I'm going somewhere where I'm uncomfortable. So I need to slow down, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but maybe it's okay to do that. And then maybe when you're doing like a code review, that's when we need that list of code smells handy to say like, oh, well, no, this isn't, you know, you, you've got like this giant system and you only have three source files or something, you know, something's wrong here. <laughs> right. Um, and I, I don't know, but to be honest with you, my experience, like I've relied on code smells during those or that sense of code smells, that intuition during code reviews as well. And it's really not until after I'd noticed that something looks weird that I start saying, trying to find the specifics of what seems weird about it. Mm -hmm. And, and this, to be honest, it, this really goes against the way that, that I currently teach my students getting back to that, you know, I have this experience and they don't have the experience because we focus significantly on planning for what we're about to do. You know, if you're in a, in a project and you're about to build an application, we spend tons of time with them going over building ERDs um, and building dependency graphs 
and even write, you know, drawing up wireframes to think about what the UI is going to look like. Um, for some of this, from some of the projects, we sort of give them a set of user stories, but then sometimes we ask them to make their own based on some kind of set of features. You know, to and and in every case, we ask people to break things down into tasks, and they just do all that planning. So, you know, all the stuff that we're supposed to do before a sprint, really, or in the, at the very beginning of a sprint. That sometimes I think as developers, particularly experienced developers, we sort of let slip once in a while. And we let it slip because we think, hey, we can get away with this because we have this experience. And maybe we shouldn't. I don't I don't I don't guess I don't know the answer to yeah. to what is best. I don't know if it's even a um a let it slip thing. I think it's maybe more of an intentional ignoring. Like, yeah, I know I could do this, but uh I'd rather just get to coding. I'd rather just get to the work because that's what I enjoy. But is that right? Do, I mean, I think that it's easy to get to that. And I think I've been to that place in my career where I got, I wanted to get to the coding just because I like that better. Um, but maybe I've just sort of convinced myself that, that getting to the coding now is, is sort of part of my planning process. Yeah. I think it depends on the culture of the organization that you're, you're working in. Um, you know, you want those things prioritized. You want security and um, maintainability and whatnot prioritized. And if you have management that's like pushing you to just get the work done, well, the first thing that's going to go is that checklist of, of best practices or whatever you want to say. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely, there's all these sort of broad ideas that I'm talking about get very murky and hard to define when you, when you bring the real world into play and like all these com competing concerns and, and, uh, and a team that doesn't just have experienced people or doesn't just have junior people on it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and maybe some of my, my thinking is sort of biased now, any of the projects that I work on are solely independent. So I don't, I don't have, it's been a while since I've actually worked on a, a real dev team, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So you're the, you're the dev team expert on this, in this conversation. <laughs> well, what I say is, uh, this is a perfect use case for artificial intelligence. Uh, shout out to episode two of our podcast. We talk about code butlers. Uh, you know, we just need to, to task the computer with these, um, kind of monitoring and, and intu intuition tasks. Um, but in the absence of that, you know, I assume that's being developed and worked on in some secret laboratory somewhere. So hopefully we'll have that soon. But, um, I really do believe in this, like, sim you got to keep it simple, but an actual checklist of, I, I don't know if it goes into the details of like, how big is your class or whatever, but it's at least calling out, like, did you think about the size of your classes? Did you think about the the principles and the patterns that, that your organization has kind of gone through before and said, this is what's, um, what we consider good programming. Um, are you evolving those things? You know, how often do you review those checklists? Uh, people that were, that kind of became programmers in the nineties are going to code in a different way than those that began in the 2000s or 2010s right so what you got to keep that as a living document i think that i mean what you're a lot of what you're talking about makes me think about you know linters and mm -hmm. you know tools like that that you know maybe that's the sort of proto code butler that will that eventually 
will actually use machine learning and actually probably, I don't know that it doesn't use machine learning now that any of those, any of those tools, but they're just looking for those things. And in a lot of, in some degree, they're looking for some code smells. I mean, they're looking for other things, but you know, Linter could tell you that all your variable names are only one letter long or that, you know, your, your classes have, or your functions have so many lines or, or your cyclomatic complexity is too big. So you have all these uh, nested ifs or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, but they're operating on the, the source file level and we need to look at the whole system or, you know, multiple systems like an integration linter or an architectural linter um, in some ways. I mean, some of the things you're talking about with the code smells do occur at the source file level and do occur in like the, a single method. And, you know, you get a sense that something's wrong here, um, but it, it's, it goes beyond that. Yeah, I maybe mean, we should probably have another episode about about provers and like software mm -hmm. tools that are trying to prove the validity of code. Uh, what I mean, we should have another episode after I do some more research. on those. <laughs> right. Those are fascinating. <laughs> and I don't understand them. I think a lot of, uh, a lot about those and mostly from a sense of like, how is that even possible that those work? I would love to know more. Um, we should, we should get an expert on or something like that to talk about that. But the thing that I want to point out, uh, that I really like about what you said, because you know, maybe you made me think about linters and the tools like that and automated tools like that. But when you when you make it more of a checklist or more of a something that the team does, I think it honors the original idea of code smell. A code smell is not something that is wrong. A code smell is an indication that you need to go and look at it and just sort of accept that it's not wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, if you smell something odd, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, somebody has shoved a fish under your chair. Right. right. It, it, it might just be a thing that happened. Maybe your dog walked by or something. Right. <laughs> it could be any, it could be something that is not, that doesn't matter. Right. So let me ask you this. I, I bet you encountered this all the time. Um, so maybe you don't have to put yourself in the, the shoes of a lead developer, but uh, when you see like a student or a junior or something like that come up with a solution that works and is okay, it's not the best or it could be better or maybe there's a better way of doing it or a cleaner way of doing it, what's the, the calculus in your mind of like saying something versus like accepting their solution? Um, I mean, obviously, like there's time constraints. If you have five minutes, you can't fix it in five minutes, then you just don't say anything. But um, when do you tell someone to go back and, and say, you could do this better? What's the kind of math around that? Well, time is a consideration, not just having five minutes, but how much time do they have to work on the project? Mm -hmm. um, so that, I mean, that sort of practicality does come into play. Um, and, but mostly it's, you know, where the student is in their, in their sort of evolution as a developer, mm -hmm. um, there for every student at the beginning, at least like just getting it to work is sufficient. You know, we celebrate that and we move on. Um, but then after the very, after the first few weeks, you know, students start moving at different rates. You know, everybody's going in the right direction, but, you know, some people are a little bit ready to hear some of that more, some of that more um, critique, I guess, with the, I don't know the word I'm looking for, but, but a little bit stronger critique mm -hmm. uh, than others are. Yeah. And, and, and so it's really a personal thing, case by case, uh, depending on 
just kind of where they are in their in their in their growth. Yeah. Um, after the time, it's, it's hard to say. It's interesting to ask that question. There's no, there's no, there's no calculation. This maybe this goes back to my original sort of reason for wanting to have this topic, which is to talk about intuition. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm still developing an intuition um, when it comes to mentoring and when it comes to working with with students or juniors. Um, but that being said, it's still, or it is kind of based on intuition that then I can go back and justify if I'm need, if I need to in a particular moment. Yeah, it definitely, there is no universal objective uh, way of saying this is it. This is the right solution. Or this is the wrong solution. I mean, there it works or it doesn't work. That's uh binary, but I guess my kind of thinking is, is it readable? Is someone who's not you able to come in here and decipher the logic or is this so complex or um, just that what's going on is hidden because you're jumping around or you're, you're using language features that we don't use or something like that? Uh, can it can at least somebody be presented with a code and given enough time understand uh, what's going on? Um, if it doesn't pass that test, and you do have to use your intuition for that, because there there is no way of saying like exactly what will happen. Um, but if it passes that test, I'm willing to accept that as a solution, even if that's not what I consider like the best way of doing it. And I think that's a very pragmatic approach. Uh, so if you're working in, in you know professionally you're trying to get something done and some junior developer or any developer comes along and says, and, and makes something work, then yeah, like, you know, good enough is, is often good enough. I mean, I think, you know, it's one of the, uh, the sort of code smells sort of is, um, is, did you write more code than you need? Like kind of the agony, you ain't going to need a principle, mm-hmm. which I think is directly related to this whole good enough is good enough. You know, if, can be, you know, if you right now you don't need it to be anything more than it is, that's not necessarily a bad thing that it is what it is. You know, if you're not, if you're, if it's not the most performant piece of code, but it's going to be hit, you know, like once a day, then it's fine. Yeah. Right. There's no need to spend any more time on it. Yeah. And, and I think that I've been lucky enough to, to work in an industry where like uh, performance at that level you know, where we're like evaluating the, the type of loop to use or the type of like, uh, you know, various, how many method calls uh, are going to make a performance difference, uh, have not had to work in that kind of environment. So there, there's probably a whole other set of skills um, that I either used to have and have atrophied or just never developed around those kinds of things. So performance is often not even a consideration. I mean, obviously there's the, you want it to run in a reasonable amount of time, but there's a, a wide range of reasonable amount of time that I get to deal with. Uh, I don't have to work at the nanosecond level. Well, and that was an example, maybe, maybe a poor one, but even if you write some code that is, you don't worry about performance, but some, some system that a user sees you know a couple times a year or maybe at the end of every month when they're you know reconciling something mm-hmm. uh and this and this code is is not the best and not necessarily the easiest to change but it's something that is that is like finished or you can make the case that you're not going to make be able to touch or have to touch it it might be the right thing to do to just leave it if, if it works and just you know accept it yeah um 
Well, would you uh, like to leave us with a parting thought on code smells? Sure. Uh, I think the, I think this conversation about intuition is something I really want to get more into and keep, keep going. Cause I'm still trying to work out what I think about how that works. Like, what does it, um, where does intuition come from? Not just where does it come from, but like, where does it come in? Mm-hmm. Uh, where does kind of rigorous, you know, engineering practices come into play? How do those two things live together in the same world in the same head? Um, but my final thought about, about code smells are, I do want to reiterate that they are an indication that something might be wrong. So this code looks funky. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is wrong. Maybe there are decision, there are reasons for, for making a giant class, for example. Like there's a pattern of like hiding all your garbage or your weird stuff in one place yeah. instead of spreading it out. For example, that's a great that's point. It's something you, you might want to put it all in one spot just for that purpose. Um, and so I don't think that people should be purists about code smells. They should be pragmatists uh, about by any of that and all. Yeah. And I also want to add that we've not really talked deeply about all different con different examples of code smells, but for anybody who hasn't, hasn't gone through that, I highly recommend, you know, taking some time um, to read through some of the early stuff that's written in uh, um, Ward Cunningham's wiki, which is some ancient lore that you'll, you'll find some good stuff in there, or even the Wikipedia pages about code smells. Just, just, just do a little research because even though I'm a little bit skeptical that we should start with a concrete list, I think having that list uh, to look back to and to point to is really useful yeah i i agree with all of that i think um spot on analysis i definitely agree with the uh, don't take a purist stance i i uh have a whole tirade against pu- um, absolutism and you know like purity thought or whatever in programming so maybe we can get to that um in a future episode so yeah great great conversation i really appreciate it and um we'll Talk to you all next time. Yeah, next time.